you, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Salt Lake Dirt. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Today on the show, I am thrilled to welcome band leader and composer Skip Heller. His project, the Hollywood film Norchestra, just put out an album called Dark Passages. Um, if you're a fan of classic noir music from you know classic film, TV shows of the past, definitely check this out. This is something I've been playing nonstop when I when I'm writing been playing it. It's been great uh, atmospheric music. I've been playing it in my classroom. Students seem to love it. Just a great album. You can find it over on Bandcamp. Just search for the Hollywood film Norchestra, and I'll have links to that as well. This was a very cool conversation for me. I felt like I was talking to the the cool older brother or the uncle, the cool uncle. Uh, Just, I got so many great recommendations, books, music, I was constantly jotting stuff down. I'm going to probably go through and transcribe this so I make sure I got everything. Um, just a great conversation. Can't wait to have Skip back. You can also check out his website to see all the different projects he's working on, uh, and that is at whatisskip.net. Once again, I'll have links to every um, everything. This is Instagram. Um, a lot of a lot of great stuff, and it was it was a real treat to have him on the on the show. Can't wait to have him back. But let's jump into it and talk to Skip Heller on the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, Kyler, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, you know, uh, the the rain finally stopped uh, pelting Los Angeles. (laughs) I heard it was pretty. Ho- I mean, I saw some videos, and I was I reached out to some friends down there. I'm like, oh my god, are you getting just swept away? I mean, it's been really bad, right? <laughs> well, I live on the top floor of a very old building, so I had to move uh, a whole bunch of my record collection around. <sighs> oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, including the autographed Louis Armstrong 78s. Oh my god, those were <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Wow, those, everything... those were in an afflicted area, and I, uh, oh I got God. them before. I got to them before, you know. A couple of years ago, it was uh, a guitar that had belonged to a guy named Slim Gaylord. Was uh, I have these things that mount a guitar to your wall? They're called mm-hmm. a string swing, mm-hmm. and they're the thing you see in guitar stores. And I was Fourth uh, of July weekend a few years back. We had like the biggest earthquakes two days in a row since the Northridge quake. And all I could think is like, Oh my God, this, this guitar, which is practically made out of balsa wood. I don't, I do not want to come home and find it has been reduced to a a little bottle of toothpicks. Oh, that's terrifying. When you have like valuable stuff, I mean, that's yeah, that's wild. (laughs) Well, I'm glad everything's safe. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. Same here. I, But there's a few things, you know, Louis Armstrong's autograph, uh, some artwork that people have given to me over the years. But aside from that, I don't have anything I can't replace. Yeah. You know, I'm not one of those guitar players that goes like, oh, I have a 1958 Fender Stratocaster. Right. I'm like, 
yeah, that's a nice museum piece, but I need something I can take into a bar and not worry well, about it. I gotta, I gotta ask about the the Armstrong autograph. I mean, where did where did you get a hold of that thing? Oh, uh, well, Louis Armstrong's autograph is actually not that uh, not that scarce. But how I got it was, um, do you know the site called Great Black News? No, no, I Which don't. It's like it's like a calendar every day. Uh-huh. Um, on the calendar, there's like a historical piece of information that really points to great things that have happened um, in African American history, and also like some piece of like literally news, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and it's run by a woman named Lori Lakin Hutcherson, and uh, she and I are old friends and. Her uncle was a butcher on Central Avenue, uh-huh. uh, which was the black epicenter of Los Angeles mm-hmm. for generations. And every day he would go, he would stop at a, at uh, Dolphins of Hollywood, a famous record store, mm-hmm. and he would buy a few records and all 78s. And when he died, she inherited the 78s. And then she said, look. You convert this stuff to MP3 for me, and you can have the 78s. Oh, wow. So I'm going through the boxes, and there were like four Louis Armstrong um, 78 sets. And I'm a Louis Armstrong ninja. I mean, I've been <laughs> the only, I've played his trumpet. Oh, my God. And I don't even play trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So uh, I, pulled, I found four autographed Louis Armstrong sets. And I called her up and I said, um, call me up right now when you get this message. <laughs> she, and I said, like, look, I found four of these. Can uh-huh. I keep one? And she said, you could have kept all four. <laughs> oh, you know? my God. Yeah. Um, so um, anyway, it the autographs were dated. And I called Ricky. This guy's name is no lie. Ricky Riccardi. And I called Ricky and I said, hey, um, you're the head of the Louis Armstrong archive. Do you know where Louis Armstrong was on November? I think it was 26, 1947. Uh-huh. I think that was the date on it. He said, what time? <laughs> that's specific. And I, said, <laughs> I said, that's what I said. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's a, a guy in Switzerland who has reconstructed every day of Pops's professional life. <laughs> And a lot of what he's using is stuff like receipts for gasoline for the tour, but you know, for the trains and stuff like that. Or uh, what time did he check into or check out of a hotel? So wow. I said, not night of, uh, gave him the date. I said it would be the night of, and he goes, well, he was in, uh, he was in uh, Los Angeles playing at the Elks ballroom. I was like, uh-huh. okay, that tracks. Wow. And, um, yeah, so it's just, I mean, I felt like I had, you know, I, it's funny because I don't really get like that up in arms about musicians' autographs. Mm-hmm. Uh, books is a different thing. But Louis Armstrong is just, he's, you know, he's one of the, he's really kind of a North Star for me. Mm-hmm. So to all of a sudden have just reached into a box and pulled this thing out was, um, like, Whoa. <laughs> <You know. laughs> that's amazing wow that's so yeah, cool well you think about it in 50 years somebody who's the friend of a son of uh who inherits like my books mm-hmm. is gonna 
reach into the box. You go, I just found an autograph, Robert Caro, you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, wow. That's so cool. Um, well, I guess we can just, we can just start. I mean, I'll do, I do intros later so we can just, um, I, I'd love to just like jump right into it and we can just kind of have a conversation. Certainly. Uh, I mean, I, I, you, you handled Jerry Stahl so beautifully. Oh, um, thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. That's Jerry, a huge I love, I love Jerry. Um, and you know, for a guy who's actually like the, the, the face he presents is this really skeptical, cynical, yeah. you know, and then he is one of the most enthusiastic. I have to know about that. What did you say that guy's name was? Okay, I'll check that out. Yeah, he's always he, the sweetest guy, and and so yeah, so curious. He made me feel because he's one of my literary heroes, and it was it, it. I I had I was blown away that I was able to get him just because I've read his for like the last twenty years. You know, he's been one of my favorites, and just to be able to connect with him, and he was so, you know cool with me that was it was great it was it was uh, he's such a an highlight. amazing guy he he uh he actually for the first gig of the new orchestra he joined the band so i wanted to ask you about that yeah I'm, i was doing some research on it and i wanted to, to know um but i guess okay so however i chop this together i want to make sure everyone knows that we're talking to skip heller right here um incredible musician and <laughs> the, the, this this beautiful new album the hollywood film new orchestra uh, dark passages i've been playing it on repeat like constantly i got the mp3 as well as the vinyl that you that you got me which thank you so much um i'm playing it everywhere and i'm playing i'm a high school teacher i've been playing it in class in some of my classes and it's uh it seems to be going over well with high school kids so hey <laughs> well, that, that was when i was in high school when i discovered film noir um yeah what do you teach, if I might ask? So I teach U.S. history, so I should know about the 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 Black History calendar. I, I'm, I made a note of that, and I'm gonna use it. So I teach U.S. history. I teach uh, a U.S. history through film class, uh, and I just kind of had that playing in the background with those classes, and um, it it just set like a really cool tone and vibe with my students. I, it was sometimes a, a piece of music will just pop on, and you can sense the shift in the mood in the like in the group of kids and it was wild there are some composers that just through the sheer charisma of their music it's like they change the color of the walls are painted in the room yeah i mean and uh, i hate cliche term but t like timeless i mean it was you know it's cool seeing uh because i love the music and and then when i see like 16 year old kids just kind of like you can tell they're they're kind of enjoying the moment. They don't maybe they don't know what they're listening to, but they know they like it. That's uh, you. That's that, well. That uh, um. No, <laughs> I, I couldn't be happier. You know. <laughs> no, I. As I said, I was like fifteen or sixteen when I started gravitating toward this music. Uh huh. And it was like a kind of a perfect storm of things pointing me towards it. Um. One was in the. Uh, junior high jazz band we had a a particularly cool um music teacher and band director mm -hmm. uh, when i was in junior high his name was michael kaufman and michael kaufman's brother steve is like the uh three-time flat picking champion at winfield which is like uh this bluegrass flat picking competition mm -hmm. 
So, and he has this thing called Kaufman Campus, which is for people who basically want to go to boot camp to become great bluegrass musicians. Oh, wow. His other brother is Willie Kaufman, who wrote, he's the definitive Woody Guthrie historian. Okay. And he's written a couple of great books, you know, about Woody and Woody and Trump. That's a, you know, which is actually a thing, believe it or not. (laughs) Woody Guthrie had some issues with Fred Trump. Uh-huh. and his uh Whoa. his rental policies yeah <laughs> bit of thought so uh <laughs> anybody who lived in new york at the time apparently <laughs> <Well>, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you know mike coffin was like the whole coffin family is just they're they're sort of like benevolent sharers of music so i i was in high school jazz band and he programmed the theme from peter gunn mm. Now, at the same time as that's going on, the first B-52s album comes out. And the opening of Planet Claire is just Peter Gunn in a different key. Yeah. So, you know, like, I couldn't read music then. And being a guitar player, I still don't read music very well. I can write it a lot better than I can sight read. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I I found a copy of the, uh, the Peter Gunn soundtrack in a bargain box somewhere for a dog. No, it was a, it was in a discount store called Clover, which was a Woolworth type of store, uh, in the Delaware Valley where I grew up, in Philadelphia. So I bought that and I just loved it, loved it, loved it. And at the same time, you know, because I am really a child of punk rock, mm-hmm. um, I'm reading interviews with all these different musicians and different types of musicians and not just american musicians but also english musicians because like any fanzine or nme new musical express which is uh kind of a weekly music newspaper you could get your hands on you were just looking for clues (laughs) um you know it was that era because there's no i'm class of 84 so there's no there's the internet the arpanet hasn't even come into you know (laughs) so you're you're really looking at regional fan scenes and you know seeing where oh we'll check this out well we checked out this we checked out that so there was a or an art house movie theater in philadelphia called um the theater of the living arts tla mm-hmm. and uh i started going to see movies there so i saw fellini there you know like that was one of the first things was eight and a half because somebody in some British music magazine said they thought Marcello Mastriani in eight and a half was the coolest thing ever. And I, I still remember the double feature was eight and a half and Amarcord. And it, everything about it, not just the music, but the visuals, the humor. I was just like, whoa, this is, is this? <laughs> yeah. You know, to, to go from Smokey and the Bandit to eight and a half. It's like, <laughs> You know, no offense to, I mean, I enjoy Smokey and the band. Sure. They're both great uh, in their own way, but yeah, I know what you, I hear you. I hear you. But one of the next things was a double feature of the third man Mm -hmm. and Rafifi. Okay. And I mean, I thought like like after watching the third man, I was like, how am I ever going to watch another movie after this? (laughs) Because it's Orson Welles on his absolute best day, you know? And then there's Rafifi, which, if you've never seen it, is a French heist movie. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it, there's basically 28 minutes of silence 
but so, the yeah, action is so this, compelling. Yeah. yeah. The, the action is so compelling that you don't notice there's silence. Uh-huh. And, and the minute you hear a little click at the end of that, just everybody's just like, <laughs> sort of like the same with the film. I want to live where it's the night before she goes to the gas chamber and you don't notice how quiet everything is until you hear a telephone ring. And you just, you know, if you see it in a room full of people, you just hear everybody gasp for breath. So I, I really started to love these movies because first of all, we're, we're talking about a period of, of American cultural life that is in pretty rough shape. Mm -hmm. You know, it is the, it is Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty and chicken McNuggets and, you know, just very, it's like the culture of the shopping mall. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like, and I mean, the rock and roll that colors the period, that period, the mainstream rock and roll of that period, it ain't like a Rolling Stone. It ain't paperback writer. It's, <laughs> you know, these, these very, the invasion of the mayonnaise people. <laughs> and the authors that are around at that time, you know, that ain't so good. And of course the films are like E.T. and, you know, like, right. The, like it's, it's, but then you started to see some other stuff from this other side of the road. And a lot of it came through punk rock, mm -hmm. you know, that was where like a lot of us went like, well, wait a minute. And those of us who were like, it, it was all, it was weird because the, the cool nerdy people, um, of which I very much was one, I'll have you know, uh, <laughs> tended to be either into Dr. Demento, <laughs> punk rock, or Devo. Okay. <laughs> and because, like, the Dr. Demento people were also into Zappa and into, you know, and, and like, not, I don't mean to say Frank Zappa is comedy, but. Dr. Demento was such a gateway drug because that was not only the first time I heard Zap, it was also the first time I heard like Yiddish music. Wow. Um, it was the first time I heard a, like, because humor is such an international language, mm -hmm. just like film is that your, your first exposure to other cultures might be through comedy. For sure. Because yeah. comedy can get, if comedy works, boy, does it get the job done, you know? Yeah, comedy, music, and food will really unite people who didn't think they had anything in common. Isn't that true? I mean, so it sounds like you, at a pretty young age, you kind of latched on to, uh, you, you were like hungry to find the stuff that really got you, you know, interested. And in. is, is that where you, when you first got in, into music? So this came from like um, junior high, middle school, high school is when you started forming an no, interest in I music. No, I got when I was a little kid you know, four years old, I wanted to watch the Smothers Brothers and Glenn Campbell and the Monkees the same way other kids would want to watch baseball. Right. I just, my, my aptitude was to music. And there was back then people didn't lip sync on TV except mm -hmm. the Monkees. Yeah. So you saw Johnny Cash sing. You saw Johnny Cash sing with Joni Mitchell, you know, and these were just really the gods from Mount Olympus. If you yeah. know what I mean? Like there's yeah. a lot of people who are very, very much bigger than life 
Um, and I just, this, I really love the Smothers Brothers because mm-hmm. there's a lot of humor. It was very funny, but also they sang so great. Right. I mean, those are beautiful harmonies. And I mean, I didn't get a lot of the jokes. When you're four years old, you really don't understand Hubert Humphrey jokes. Um, <laughs> You know, or Pat Paulson's fictional campaign for president, which is just one of the most brilliant things ever. But, uh, you know, I just I got a good feeling from it. And yeah. then the, the summer replacement show was the Glenn Campbell show. And I just and that was wall to wall music. And I just love that. And again, there was the monkeys and every babysitter you had carried like her little record player around. So you were hearing the Beatles oh, and there was so the radio. Cool. So. Yeah, it was just a wonderful, you know, I'm, I'll be 58 years old this year. Mm-hmm. You know, the first concert I ever got to see was Elvis Presley pretty much in his last good year. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> but a it's first also, concert. you know, <laughs> yeah. Mine was <laughs> the monkeys. Actually, mine was the monkeys in like 80, 85. I was four years old <laughs> with the three oh, monkeys. Wow. <laughs> My parents well, took me I, to that. He, Blew me away. My sister, <laughs> my sister went to see them on that tour, actually. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, to this day, I mean, I went to see the monkeys after Davey died. There was like a reunion tour with the other three. Yeah. And it was such a great show. Yeah. Because, you know, they come out and the, the first thing they do is a bloop, here we come. Yeah. Do that stuff. <laughs> and then they change the set and there's the drum that says drum on the drum head. <laughs> and they come out and they're doing headquarters and that stuff. Yeah. And Mickey Dolan's absolutely he 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 has a stadium full of personality. Oh yeah. Like except for David Lee Roth, I don't think I've ever seen anybody fill a stadium with their personality like that with a rock and roll band. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Uh, wow. El- so, Elvis, you know, that just, well, that that just blows my mind. That blows my mind. That's I've never I don't think I've ever met anyone who saw Elvis live. Wow. Well, yeah. I, and I have several friends who have, and we're all like, well, I saw him in 74. Oh, what, which jumpsuit? It was, well, it was the blue peacock, you know, and there's a, there's a hotel here in Hollywood um, called the Roosevelt hotel. Yeah. And there's a picture of Elvis. It says like uh, Hilton hotel, Philadelphia PA, June 24th, 1974. I'm like, that's June 23rd. <laughs> How do you know? Because June 23rd matinee show, he was wearing that jumpsuit. 24th or that night, he was wearing a different, and he was traveling on the 24th. If there's ever an Elvis trivial pursuit, man, I'm the partner you want. <laughs> that's but that's that was uh, But the 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 thing is, you know, like as I got my first acoustic guitar when I was like 10 or 11. One of the things in the piano bench, you know, my mom had a piano, was uh, a Peter, Paul, and Mary songbook. So it had some Bob Dylan songs in it that were three chords and uh, a Beatles songbook with a couple of things in it that were three chords. And I just figured out, you know, this chord, that chord, whatever. And also Philadelphia having uh, Philadelphia had the largest naval installation of any East Coast city. So there were always a lot of Southerners there that had been shipped up from Norfolk. So Philly always had a country station. So I was glued to country music radio because it was just a great time. Mm-hmm. That was that was when Willie Nelson went from that guy Willie Nelson to Willie, you know, <laughs> one word. 
Dolly was really at the height of her powers. Merle Haggard was at the height of his powers. So these were all great songs. And, you know, and then obviously like Elvis dies in 77. It's like, well, Elvis and Groucho, who was like my right. other favorite person, died within five days of each other. Right. I, yeah, that's right. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's the, here's the crazy one for you. Do you know who wrote Elvis's obituary for the New York Times? Don't tell me Groucho did. <laughs> no. Groucho died during Elvis's funeral. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, who, no. who wrote it? That's that's a, that's incredible. <laughs> Molly Ivins. Really? Why? Molly, did... Ivins was the, Molly Ivins was then a reporter for the New York Times. I think she was covering, like, the, the Denver Bureau or something like that. And they didn't have anybody who covered anything even like country music. And they, they kind of went like, Ivan's, you're a Southerner, you know, like, <laughs> and know this you, guy. you read, you, you read her coverage of Elvis's funeral. And it is some of the most beautiful human writing that you ever want to, you ever <sighs> want to encounter in your life. I got to check that out. That's awesome. You, uh, you really should. It's just like, you know, she, she remarks on the fact that he's like very bloated in the casket. Uh-huh. And then remarks on the, re, you know, the reactions of the people passing by and seeing him for the last time. Wow. And how, and she says, you know, to some, this might seem distasteful, but love and admiration are not always in the best of taste. Yeah. And it's just like this. Wow. Is, no wonder you grew up to be Molly. Ivins. I mean, she's <laughs> just, you know, she's one of those people like Jerry, who, yeah. uh, Jerry Stahl. There, there's a part in 999 where he's talking about, you know, you're standing at the ground zero of human misery, and there's somebody wearing an I'm with stupid <laughs> t-shirt taking a selfie. Yeah. And I asked Jerry about it. He goes, yeah, it struck me the same way, but who am I? Right. How he kind of like came to turn, like in the book, how he came to terms with like, because it sounds so, so infuriating. And then it was just like, okay, this is just what's out of my control. This is, this is what's happening. Yeah, this is this is what actually, this is the difference between the menu and the kitchen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it says, it says hamburger on the menu, but once the order goes into the kitchen, that's where the, that's where food begins. That's where it is. And, I, I, no, but I mean, like, I, like obviously like Jer- Jerry Stahl is somebody I really, I mean, I just had such a fun time just talking to him about stuff mm-hmm. because he could find, he could find the worst chord of humanity in anything to which he was referring. And then he could make it blindingly hilarious, yeah. but also really humanize it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, he's br- he's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it, it is an incredible mind. I mean, it's yeah, it's so true. So he's from Philly. Is that, is that how you have a connection with no, him? No, he's from he's no, he's from Pittsburgh. Oh, okay, and that's right. Pitt, Pittsburgh, like more people from Philly have been to New York than have been to Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's like all no, it's not convenient to anything unless you're going to Ohio. Okay, it's actually. People from Cleveland or, or West Virginia or whatever have more contact with Pittsburgh. People from Philly have more contact because it's way in the eastern part of the state. 
with uh, New York or, or Washington. Okay. But okay. what happened was um, when I was putting the concert together, I had initially done my first full length film noir project was a CD with a guy called John Gilmore. And uh, that John Gilmore was a true crime memoirist. And he also wrote a like kind of the definitive biography of the Black Dahlia, which is called Severed. And it, the, the two books, Severed and Laid Bare, were uh, published by Amok Books. Stuart Sweezy, who was the publisher of Amok Books, which started out as a bookstore. And it was one of those bookstores where you could get books that certain people should not be able to buy. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, how to, how to build your own nuclear bomb out of a potato <laughs> and live off the grid. You know, like those kinds of books. Yeah. Uh, look up the Loom Panics catalog. Stewart's store carried books that were in the Loom Panics catalog. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, like if you ever meet a woman who goes, oh, I had that. No. <laughs> swipe left. Swipe Get left. You know? Yeah. So. Anyway, Stuart and I have been friends for years, and he was the first person to really say, like, hey, I noticed you have this uh, this proclivity in your work towards a, that type of film music. Would you like to do a record with John Gilmore where you would write backgrounds and we would have Gilmore read in front of it? Great. Yeah. You know, and Stuart and I have, uh, you know, that that project was received with kindness and enthusiasm. It was the first time I'd been written about in other countries. Um, so, you know, and, and, and I really loved working with John and Stuart and I've stayed friends, you know, like we just had coffee the other day. Cause now we're just, we went from being radical young, you know, whatever <laughs> to uh, old, old Jewish guys talking about doctors, his son, you know, the Hillel at his son's college and, you know, all this stuff. It's like, That's great. <laughs> so when I was putting the group together, um, I called up Stuart and I said, help me with this. Cause I really, if I do it, I'll just go all over the place. Cause mm -hmm. I will, instead of keeping things cohesive, I might try to pull too many things in from too many places. And he's like, okay, you know, how about if we do something with some of the laid bare music so we can have, I said, well, who's going to read Gilmore? Mm -hmm. And uh, turned out Jerry Stahl is a Gilmore fan. Okay. So he said, what about, we mentioned a couple of people. He said, like, I bet Jerry Stahl would be good. I was like, I love Jerry Stahl. You know Jerry Stahl? You know, <laughs> like, I don't, you know, again, it's like, you you know an actual published author <laughs> and uh so we met up at a place called cafe tropical in silver lake and uh thinking yeah we'll just talk about this for an hour and see how it goes and we had like four hours hyper caffeinated you know and i just thought like oh man this is just this is going to be so cool and then when Cherry got on microphone, man, he was just like, he he has a very deceptive kind of charisma. Mm -hmm. So we're we're on stage at this place in Palm Springs, and Jerry starts talking, and I see the entire room go <laughs> like they are leaning in like this. 
even when he's reading somebody else's words, he's an absolutely beautiful storyteller. And uh, people like we're walking up and going, where's your merch table? Isn't there a CD of this? Yeah. Like, no. And uh, so about a week later, uh, I was, having coffee with Stuart and I said people were asking me I said yeah people were asking me too so I just did a GoFundMe and um made the record off of GoFundMe I mean if I had known it was gonna take on the life that it's taken on I actually would have been a little more careful because mm-hmm. I just wanted I just thought me and 40 of my weird little friends yeah. will want something like this and then uh I was introduced to uh, Dylan Gertzen at Killer Kern Records at an art opening. And he said, oh, I heard about that. Can I put it out? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so and then just reading over, it says that um, Teller from Penn & Teller was interested in this. And so, I mean, so it sounds like you had a lot of support. A lot of people were like, all like, you got to get this thing out. Yeah, actually, uh, Teller and... um, and Todd Hughes and P. David Abersold together. Uh, Abersold Hughes and Teller were the, the two biggest donors. And they, they paid for 40% of it. Wow. I mean, they, they, they wrote really generous checks. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we had Todd on the show a while back. That was... Um, I know, yeah, I saw guy. that. And you, yeah. you know, to, I, that... The, the Elizabeth Scott book, we were trying to do Elizabeth Scott project. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and uh, it, we just couldn't get the, the kind of traction that you need to, cause it was going to be the Hollywood film noir orchestra with different guest vocalists. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, let's just say those two fellows are connected. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it was like, they were like, going, you know, Nancy would probably do it. Nancy. Yeah. Sinatra. <laughs> okay. Oh, then let's get Chuck. Then let's get Chuck Berghoffer to play bass. He's still in town. You know, the guy who played on these boots are made for walking. He's yeah. still doing gigs. Man. You know, I, I'm really good at finding people who are still doing stuff. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, at, at any rate, um, you know, we just basically made a record of. 40 of the 70 minutes of music that we had. There's no tricks. I mean, I just literally sat down with LPs and DVDs and whatever and wrote out, you know, transcribing is what we call it. Mm. Transcribed what was on the film soundtrack. Oh, and wow. then, uh, yeah, it's uh, a couple of the things. There was one that I had been working on for years, which is Street Moods and Jazz, which is one of the okay. Twilight Zone series. Right. And, uh, I just thought like, man, I will never, because I've been working on it for years and some of it's so dense that you can't tell what the, what the notes are because they're just so, you know, it's like trying to discern every ingredient in uh, beef stew. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's so it's, it's what's it made out of beef stew. (laughs) So, and then, um, my friend Cart, um, my friend Brennan said, "Like, uh, oh, I have the music for that." So I was like, "Send it down," and I 
a little tiny bit of reorchestration. Uh, but basically we just did that one very literally and it had right. never been recorded exactly as it was written before. Um, there were parts left out of the recording that you hear on twilight zone. So this is like the world premiere of oh, wow. street modes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Brandon really came up with a, with a few things. Uh, he came up with that fair haired boy and the two cues that we used from the hustler. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, it was just me putting on my, green eye shade and going okay what's mr alto saxophone player doing here <laughs> wow and then so let's talk about the title so dark passages uh it's a david goodis novel title and uh, david goodis is from philadelphia so I, okay. even though it's a hollywood thing i wanted to get my philadelphia great you know we philadelphians are very chauvinistic about <laughs> our uh, you know oh that's wonderful uh well, yeah, it's an incredible project. I'd love to play on when we put this on the radio. I'd love to play um, a track. Is there is there one in particular you would like us to play? If that's okay. Uh, yeah. Well, most people, I like uh, street moods and jazz, kind of the best out of all of them. But uh, a lot of other people really like Touch of Evil, which is flattering to me because like Touch of Evil is really my arrangement. Uh, because like what I noticed with with Touch of Evil was the actual piece of music itself is only about I don't know a minute and ten seconds or something. Mm-hmm. So I had to develop it out and ask myself how would Henry Mancini uh, and Henry Mancini were lucky with him because he wrote a book about how he writes music. Okay, it's called Sounds and Scores, and he has you know printed musical examples. Um, just is it right up there it's some uh where the hell did i put it <laughs> oh well uh, no it's uh um i live in an, in an apartment that's even even by the standards of small boy is it small uh, <laughs> but the the book sounds and scores he he has examples of his own music and he said if you're looking for this effect this is how I wrote it out. And it's, this is how I did it on the pink Panther. You know, you go through it. That's so, I mean, uh, when people do stuff like that, it's just so generous and so incredible for people who like, how do you do that? And then they are just so giving in their knowledge. It's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But let me, you know, let, let me just, you know, put a pin in the balloon for a second. Um, I, uh, I interviewed Bert Backrack. It was, it was a really extensive interview in about 1994, I think. And I transcribed, you know, like literally sat there and went like, okay, what are the notes? What are the, the how, what's the distribution of harmony through the different instruments and everything. And, and man, okay, I can tell you what he did. I can't tell you how he arrived at those choices. Mm-hmm. And to me, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are certain musicians that I look at and I go like, I understand where that comes from. I understand where that comes from. But then there's like this untraceable bloodline through it that I can't, you know, it's almost like, what made you think that would work? Right. And that's that's 
that's kind of what the language of genius is. Right. I mean, they you know, can't explain it. I mean, it, when they when they create something like that, like where did that come from? You, you, I talked to a lot of writers who say the exact same thing. It just kind of like is almost delivered to them. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a there was a um, a TV series called Classic Albums, uh-huh. and so they do Steely Dan, Asia, Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, you know, all these great records. One of the ones they did was Songs in the Key of Life. Mm-hmm. And trying to even Stevie Wonder going like, oh, I got this idea from here. And then he's playing the idea. It's like, that sounds nothing like the thing <laughs> you that gave you the idea. How do you do that? Oh, you're Stevie Wonder. And, and I mean, like the thing, too, to remember, you know, and I, I've been thinking about this kind of thing all day because. I had the terrible feeling that you were going to ask me an unanswerable question like this. <laughs> but, but also the great composer and saxophone player Wayne Shorter died this morning. Okay. And, you know, Wayne Shorter's career starts, you know, with Art Blakey and then he's with Miles Davis and then Weather Report. He's also the guy like playing the saxophone solo on Asia by Steely Dan and the opening theme of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and he's recorded with Joni Mitchell, you know, like he just can take his ideas anywhere, you know, cause that's what genius does. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking Keith Jarrett said music, no more comes from music than babies come from babies. And wow. I thought, man, that is Whoa. really now now you're talking about something because there's certain musicians and certain writers and like when i read robert caro and i mean i i don't know if you've read caro but Mm, no uh you know his his biographies of lyndon johnson are the best writing of my lifetime i think wow and and i'm yeah i mean he's just he's not just the best historian he's just a profound, brilliant writer. Um, if you're going to read Caro from scratch, if you don't want to do the whole 3000 page journey, because there <laughs> it's at least 3000 pages, start with uh, the passage of power, which is the, his book about Johnson in the Kennedy white house. Okay. And it literally ends with that. the first yeah. hundred days. Of, yeah. It's just utterly brilliant. And, uh, you know, when you when you go to Lou Dubose's house, and Lou Dubose was the guy who wrote the biography of Carl Rove, you know, like uh, okay, and you see like on top of his bookshelf are just the five Caro books isolated from everything else. <laughs> you know, the like, holy like holy scripture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay, so that guy's yes, he's muddy waters, you know. That's how you're gonna do this if you're gonna work in this. But uh but I look at writers like Caro, Mark Twain. Um, and I just realized that like, they are reaching to something ancient, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they're, they're not just rooted in the knowledge of their lifetime and they're, and the thing that goes past the, the knowledge of their lifetime, isn't just study. It's, there's just something that they can bring from the ancient past into their contemporary work. Uh, I think Scorsese has that quality. I think mm-hmm. Dylan has that quality. 
Louis Armstrong had that quality. Bill Monroe had that quality. But, you know, there's like not that many people who can get to that, that thing that happens before it becomes history. Right. It's like the, the impulse of the idea itself. And now we're talking about something that, that goes, it's not just a music consideration anymore. It's not just a film consideration anymore. It's not just a writing consideration anymore. It's the idea that you're going to bring something to life that it's somewhere in the, you know, in those outer mists, but yeah. you've got it, but, but you're creating it in a new way. Yeah. I, I thought I saw, um, I haven't seen the film yet. I don't know. I, I don't know much about it, but the, the trailer intrigued me. And then a friend recommended they hadn't seen either, but they're like, it looks good. The, that new Leonard Cohen documentary, um, I think it's on Netflix and it's about, I think, I don't know if it's like a biography, but it kind of weaves in the, the writing of the song, Hallelujah and just kind of how it, um, how it came to him. So that, that kind of ma- makes me think of that. And, and I, I got to check that out. I, I've heard, I've heard good things. Oh, Ma- Mavis Staples, you know, said when she heard blowing in the wind for the first time, uh-huh. she, you know, Mavis Staples, you know, comes from a gospel music, fa- you know, African-American gospel music family in Memphis. And, you know, so her father, Pop Staples, man, he, Memphis is tough now. So yeah. what, what is Memphis like in 1950? Uh-huh. And she's going like, I hear this. And she's going, how can this little kid know what's in my father's heart like this? And I was like, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, you know, how, how can Scorsese know these things? Or how could Mark Twain know these things? Right. And I, I look at Twain and I just like, again, you know, how did that guy and he just his way of breaking things down to the elementary state of being mm-hmm. is on a higher level than almost anybody else's that I've ever, you know, Shakespeare's oh, yeah. up there. You know. Um there's like there's one of the uh, uh, I, I always reread Twain because it's like Frankly, I keep a copy in the bathroom. Yeah. And uh, he's talking about if you have a jar of red ants and black ants, they don't fight with each other until you shake the jar (laughs) and then they're at war with each other. Yeah. He goes, the ants don't understand their enemy. Each each ant does not understand. The enemy is not the ant of another color. It's whoever shook the jar. Hmm. Whoa, I haven't heard and, that one. That's wild. <laughs> and, you know, like I've been, you know, I've been glued to the coverage of uh, Rupert Murdoch's testimony. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, like, this guy should be found guilty of shaking the jar. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> oh, that's wow. That's incredible. Um, I do like I know I'm, I'm kind of pivoting here, but I want I did want to ask you. By all means. I, I want to ask you about this Raymond Chandler project. Um the, the princess and the peddler, something I was completely unaware of. And um, maybe you just tell our audience like what, what this was and, and, and what you did with it. I mean, it sounds um, this, I'm very it, intrigued. It, yeah. So was I, there, there are a couple of uh, 
prominent Los Angeles historians. They're kind of like personality historians, but they do a lot of um, they do a lot of good for preservation in Los Angeles. And um, they had become friends with the daughter of Raymond Chandler's housekeeper. Um, okay. Raymond Chandler's the last part of Raymond Chandler's life was spent mostly in La Jolla, which is uh, North San Diego County. And uh, it's very frou-frou. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. It's super frou-frou. <laughs> so uh, Chandler was very fond of the daughter and gave her a copy of this operetta that he had written. <laughs> And she gave it to these historians, uh, Kim Cooper and Richard Tripp. So they got a hold of me and said, we have this thing, but before we can even tell you about it, you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. No problem. Um, so I signed the NDA and they say, okay, meet us at the farmer's market and we'll bring you, we're going to give you a folder. And I'm like, okay, great. I think get smart was filmed next door to the, the, uh, the farmer's market at uh, CBS television city. So what the hell? So they show up with this libretto and a bunch of music that's, you know, uh, basically, um, do you know anything about classical music and the mechanics of performing it? No, I am completely okay, naive. Well, yeah. Basically, <laughs> what they've just got is basically this sort of um, very specific sheet music for vocal and piano. Mm-hmm. It's called a leader score. So they give me the, and I look at the um, the title page, and it's The Princess and the Peddler by lyric or libretto by Raymond Chandler music by Julian Pascal. Now, if you know anything about the biography of Raymond Chandler, you know, his wife's name was Sissy Mm -hmm. and she was significantly older than him. And her maiden or her not maiden name, her previous married name had been Pascal. She, this is basically the husband of the wife he stole Uh (laughs) wrote the music. So, and we're looking at the, you know, there's a, that book, the collected letters of Raymond Chandler, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and just from that and from Tom Heine's biography and Frank McShane's biography and all the other Chandler biographies, which you can tell I have read because I can remember all of them. Yeah. That's wild. Well, you know, just again, (laughs) If you ever need a Raymond Chandler trivial pursuit partner. <laughs> and that was why they called me because they knew I really knew Chandler. Um, but Chandler was spending a lot of time over at the Pascal house, ostensibly to work on this Gilbert and Sullivan type of uh, project. Cause it's an operetta and the, uh-huh. the humor is very Gilbert and Sullivan and the music is very Gilbert and Sullivan. And um, you go like, yeah, this is what Raymond Chandler was using as an excuse 
poor work while he was stealing his collaborator's <laughs> wife. But it's very much in the Gilbert and Sullivan style. And what we did was basically we took the libretto and the score and my assistant, uh, who's at that time was a guy named Tim Schmaltz. Um, Tim typed it into a music notation program. And then I went through it and said, I don't think that note is that it's that because, and we just basically, you know, got it to where it should be. Uh, so it could be performed, but unfortunately, um, the, the estate of Raymond Chandler did not want this to come out Mm. because, uh, Chandler's last agent was a woman named Helga Green. And uh, Helga did not really want anything about the other relationships Chandler had interfering with her narrative as Chandler's last great savior. Okay. Or at least this is the way the story was told to me. Mm-hmm. Um, if I if it's wrong, I'm not going down for what Tim and Richard <laughs> told me. Um, but I but I think that is the case because why else would you not want to introduce some kind of new raymond chandler work there was no by no means substandard work Mm -hmm. it's definitely not um it doesn't uh it doesn't come off badly Mm -hmm. and the fact that he you know we we know he published poetry before he published any uh hard-boiled stories or any of the stuff but it's musically it wasn't bad and the idea that he was like this versatile and this witty um because the one thing that really carries from princess and the peddler over into the the hard-boiled stories and eventually the Marlowe stories is the wit mm-hmm. it's very dry and you know chandler was born in nebraska but he was educated in england so he has oh, that kind that. of pg yeah he yeah. has a kind of pg Wodehouse sort yeah. of wit and uh and obviously it was a terrific honor to be selected to you know to to put my fingerprints on something that was uh in any way you know a, a sort of like unfinished raymond chandler now, me yeah. and robert parker right here babe <laughs> <laughs> wow I so think, I... yeah robert robert parker finished the last chandler novel right um poodle springs man yeah i saw that and i was like what like i mean because i don't i haven't read any of the biographies i didn't know i don't know much about i mean i've read the marlowe stuff i've read you know i've read that but i just was like oh my god he music too like wow that's that's fascinating but now like hearing more of a backstory oh my gosh that makes sense yeah well that was the thing that got to me was when i saw like it didn't strike me as funny that he would have, cause the intelligentsia at the time, just like now everybody thinks they can write a song. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Whoa. Julian piss this. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, like not, not until, not until, uh, you know, uh, Eric Clapton would steal George Harrison's wife to, and write Layla. <laughs> do we have anything so salubrious to, uh, you know, yeah. attached to history, but it, it's a great story. You know, um, it's a great story. It's a shame we didn't get to stage it because yeah. 
you know, when I was looking, I was going, well, how are we going to orchestrate this? And I was thinking about these like little salon orchestras that, you know, when Richard Wagner would go someplace and hear his music being played, because even though there weren't records at that time, Wagner's operas were, you know, he's like the Andrew Lloyd Webber of his time, except mm-hmm. with talent. And <laughs> he, um, you know, there would be like a string quartet with piano and accordion doing sort of reduced versions of his music. And I thought we could do it that way because mm-hmm. that would be period precise. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it wouldn't just sound like, you know, the, the, the same opera. A lot of operetta sounds to me like operetta, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but <laughs> you know, there's a reason they make fun of it on the Simpsons and the West Wing, and yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know uh, so I was thinking, like, how could we? How could we? And the, the idea is like, well, man, scale it down. Just mm-hmm. let the music sing instead of let the pageantry overwhelm it, which, of course, is the antithesis of Wagner because Wagner had his own opera hall built uh-huh. Bayreuth and Bayreuth is just like as hedonistic as you think any rock star has ever been. <laughs> F- Freddie Mercury would look at Bayreuth and go, dude, <laughs> dial it back. <laughs> oh, <that's, laughs> oh my gosh. This is man. This is, um, I need to have you back on because we're, we're getting, we're getting close to our hour here. Um, you're you're a, like you're a historian. I mean, this is like I'm writing. I'm jotting this down. I'm going to go back before I publish this and uh, make a list of all this stuff that I got. I got some homework, some stuff that I'm like, I've never heard of this. I got to read this. Uh, I love talking <laughs> to people. I love talking to people like you that just like well, I know. <laughs> I'm the son of a librarian, so from the time I was very young, I was turned loose on the world with a library card. <laughs> so it was like I don't know what that is. Well. <laughs> go to the library look it up you know yeah that was my mother's thing is like the, the two things my parents gave me that have really contributed so much to this record uh were a library card you know like a means to research and a work ethic yeah that's all that's i mean you're unstoppable with with that that's that's great yeah no i was i, I was lucky that being said, this is the only album I've ever made that my mother said, like, this is not my favorite work. <laughs> Honesty, huh? <laughs> she she preferred when I was writing country songs that, you know, Dolly Parton could sing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's like, sorry, mom. Uh, you know, like that was, you know, uh, glad you like that. Glad there's something in my calendar that you can in my catalog <laughs> that you can hum along with your favorite you know, Neil Diamond song or, you know, George Strait or, you know, there's other great people. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I really like this moody, ambiguous, you know, spiritually distrusting music. (laughs) That's a beautiful way (laughs) of describing it. No, it's like, you know, I'm not a musician. I know, I know nothing about like the technicality you know, the elements of it, the, the building of, of a, of a score of a song. Um, 
but this album is just like I love it. I, I've been and it, I've been writing to it even, so I've been having that on the background as I write. You know, it's well, just, that re- it's you great. know, you're the second person to tell me that. Uh, yeah, Laurie uh, Stevens, who's a really good mystery writer, and mentioned me in one of her books, by the way, which nice. to me was like, you know, uh, that that just. But she she said like, man, I put this on. It really keeps me in the mood to write yeah. this kind. Of yeah no it's it's true (laughs) short of being drawn into dunesbury i can't think of anything (laughs) quite so flattering aside from being called to play with a musician i really admire yeah well this is great um so i want to i want to i'm right now i'm inviting you back (laughs) for a future episode because uh this has been like really really fun it's an education too and i'm i'm just uh i'm excited to explore all these different things that i i'm not uh, i'll be really to. interested to hear your reaction to robert carroll yeah i'm reading that's on my top that's the top of the list right there so I'm, yeah uh, i would that's i think that's one of the five or six best books you know as a matter of fact i asked you know i said jerry you're a writer what do you think of robert carroll Said you're not allowed to call me a writer in the same <laughs> breath as mentioning Robert Caro. Wow. wow. Okay. You know, I have. It, I'm tonight. Yeah. I'm buying a copy. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say uh, just get the the passage of power, and then you're going to go back and read everything because it's just the guy is really he's like Tolstoy in America. Yeah. But it's not fiction. Oh, that's you that's know, wonderful. You, that's wonderful. He's you know. Again, I, I look at Carol and I go, you have your hand to something nature. Yeah. You I know, can't wait. I'm, he, I'm, and, I'm getting it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm actually tonight. I'm going to finish reading Fiona Hill's book. Okay. Uh, nothing for you here. Fiona Hill was the woman who te- was the woman who testified like Donald Trump was literally threatening her on Twitter while she was testifying. Right. Yeah. And she comes from this very working class English background. And in addition to having a fascinating life story, she's a hell of a writer. Yeah. Oh my God. It's a, it's a good one, huh? It's great. I mean, I've, I've read all of you. Like I always read all the contemporary American history books as things are going on. Yeah. Cause you know, they, we all, my parents are both in unions, so we always we were always paying attention to politics in the mm-hmm. house. Um, and so I grew up thinking like Woodward and Bernstein and Jimmy Carter and Pete Seeger were heroes. Yeah. And they are. Um, but uh, as I've gotten, you know, like as the coverage of uh, Washington politics has become more really with it really took off after 9-11. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when you start seeing a lot, a lot, a lot of books about it. But there are certain people who you go like, well, what does that person do in the, you know, uh, you know, what's really their their role in the carrying out of this production? That is, mm-hmm. you know, like Frank Zappa always used to say that politics is the um, entertainment branch of the military industrial complex <laughs> <laughs> and you're like okay what's that guy's role but the fiona hill book is just really exceptional um and i just read it on top of reading a bernie madoff uh biography oh wow wow <laughs> yeah heavy stuff yeah that's um that's cool um okay 
I want to know. So where can people get the album? Um, Go because... to bandcamp. Uh, bandcamp.com and just type in Hollywood Film Noir Orchestra. I'll send you the link so you can post it with the podcast. Great. And oh, we'll... I ha- I have the link. No, but I'll yeah I um because you can get the you can get the vinyl through there you, or you, you can the, download it through the mp3 mp3 yeah. which um yeah it's uh but i i mean get the mp3 but the vinyl is awesome the the artwork is is wonderful and it's just the, uh, uh, the sucks the you art, right in the, the artist's name is thomas kimball and uh he's just a, a a wonderful friend a remarkable artist and everybody is always complimenting like the the sonic quality of the record and that's kevin Chaburka, who plays drums in the group and also he he's like you know he's sort of my hetero life mate kind of um <laughs> chuck d to my flavor Flav, <laughs> silent bob to my J. um he's the he's the one who every outlandish idea i have about how i think a record should sound he makes into a practical idea and for all the compliments that i'm willing to drink in um I wouldn't be eligible for one even tiny piece of praise without somebody who really knows what they're doing uh-huh. to make it sound like I need it to sound. And he's always that guy. What a partnership. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's great. I am really lucky with the, the creative talent I'm surrounded by. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, uh, skip, this was, like I said, this was, this one kind of took me off guard in a good way. Um, I was so happy when I, you know, when you reached out and I, I got the album because I was like, this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm into and that I love, you know, talking about on the show. So thank you so much for for making that. Well, album. <laughs> again, you did you did such a great job with both uh, Todd and, and with Stahl that I thought, like, I bet this guy would like this record. Oh, so. I love it. And, th- and that's a that makes me feel great. Thank you so much for those kind words. And, and you're absolutely right. I was like, I was just so excited uh, to start listening to it. And, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And now it's, like I said, it's my, it's my writing soundtrack for now. So it's, it's great. <laughs> just wait, just wait for the next one. As so we, so there's plans. Okay. That's a, maybe a good, we've already um, done. Ending question. I think the next one's going to be, the next one is probably going to be mainly Mancini. Okay. Um, cause I, I, I it was either going to be Mancini or stuff from not, american noir movies uh-huh. because i had to bump a couple of kurosawa themes that i really loved because we got street moods and jazz and mm-hmm. like a couple of other things like oh gotta use them yeah and i and uh i did two non-hollywood themes one was uh beat girl which is english and the other is uh rafifi which is french on the first one and i was gonna do uh, Argentine and Japanese. Somebody said, you know, that's a little obscure, even though there's a lot of great music in those two worlds. Why don't you do like one composer? And, you know, Mancini is really the, uh, he's like the Chuck Berry of the style. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> and so we have two vocal Mancini tunes done with, with Allison oh, and great. with, uh, yeah, and I got to use Greg Cohen on bass, who's the bass player on most of the 80s Tom Waits albums. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, Greg and I have known each other for years, and he's always just been really super supportive. And he finally moved back to L.A. Uh-huh. And uh, 
I said, can I call you? He said, yeah, you know, like we're <laughs> friends. You don't have to ask. And not only did he come in and play beautifully, but he just was like one of those guys who just knew how to take your direction and go, yeah, that's a great idea. And he could just put that little thing on it that would make it. He's one of those guys like, I don't care how funny your line is. If you have Steven Root delivering it, he will make it funny. <laughs> like whether you're watching King of the Hill or Fargo or Barry, yeah. anytime you see Steven Root, you just go, yeah, that curve has just gone up. And Greg is the same way. He makes every drummer just sound like, you know, warmer. And he just, it's, he's just, you know, you can see why he gets all the gigs. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I used him on it and it inspired some of my very best work. And, uh, and it was sort of funny to see Greg, um, like Alison Lewis is a terrific singer, but mm -hmm. she doesn't know a lot of the music that we were referring to. So the fact that Greg had to explain to her who John Zorn is, <laughs> because in my universe, John Zorn and the musicians who I play with, yeah, our universe is like John Zorn. He's one of the major composers of the last 40 or 50 years, right mm -hmm. up next to Philip Glass and, you know, anybody else. And he's, he has moved some mountains. Right. And, and Greg is going, yeah, I had to go to the hospital. I was with this friend of mine named John Zorn. And they took one look at us and and started bringing John into the emergency ward. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So I'm excited. Yeah, this one just came out, but I'm like, I'm I'm in. So I'm keeping an eye out for, for all this. And please, please. Um, and then also I have a single, a 245 set coming out that I produced and arranged for. What, the greatest legend of Latin soul, Joe Batan, B-A-T-A-A-N. Um, and he was really like the guy who put Latin soul on the map in the 60s. And he still sings his ass off. And uh, we did a, a four-song project with him, but we had to put it over 245s because it's like too long for an EP. And the Latin audience doesn't really buy 12-inch singles. Okay, so, so, so that's coming that. out. That's per That's coming out in the future? That's coming out in the next few weeks. Yeah. Oh, just, excellent. Uh, excellent. Yeah. Um, and that's like some of the best stuff I've ever done. And then I did a single with a, a, an absolutely amazing singer named Lena Marie Cardinal. We did You Only Live Twice from James Bond. And then the B-side is a song called uh, Mountain High Valley Low, which is of all things a love ballad written by Raymond Scott, who's more known for music that wound up in Warner Brothers cartoons. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. I'm in. And I'm also in. and also an LP of songs by Lalo Guerrero, who is like the, the godfather of Chicano music. So there'll be a lot of stuff hitting the street this year. Great. So um, um so where is there one spot where people can find all of your kind of like your the work that you're that you're putting go out? Go to uh, our our brand new website that uh will be actually going live tonight as we're doing this. So it'll Great. be up by the time you speak. And that is what is skip.net. Great. Named for the Tower of Power song, What is Hip? <laughs> uh, 
this was incredible. My mind is like like swimming and all kinds of stuff right now. So <laughs> I have to I have You're to sit. <laughs> but I wanna I wanna have you back and I like thank you for talking to someone who is not musically inclined. Uh because I am I'm I I, I love it, but I don't I don't know why I love it, but I know I love it. <laughs> so thank you for being that's, patient that's... with somebody who knows nothing about this world. <laughs> no, as I said, I I I thought you would like it that after uh, seeing your interviews with, with Jerry Stahl and, and Todd Hughes. And I thought, you know, have you, have you uh, read P David's book, by the way? No, 99 no. miles. It's no. really good. Is it? Okay. Well, no, and, I mean, I didn't, he, that's often. Yeah. I yeah. Didn't know. It's really good. And he, uh, does he, he, he wrote a few pages about Johnny Mathis in there. And I went to see Johnny Mathis recently. I went backstage and, he didn't know about the book, but he did the song 99 Miles from Los Angeles in the show. Oh, so great. I had him I had him autograph the set list and I just sent it off to, oh, to Todd great. and P. David today. Yeah. That's wonderful. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> uh, what is skip.net? Okay, I'll have links to all this. And uh, again, thank you so much. Um, I'm having you oh, back. Oh, man, the, the honor is mine. Great. Well, no, maybe maybe you. <laughs> maybe you me and stall together. That oh would my be god, that would that would be that would be fun. <laughs> I could just turn you guys loose. I'll just like moderate the Zoom call. <laughs> but that's that that sounds a lot of fun. Uh, uh, you know he he's he's just down the road. I got to give him a call. Uh, well, yeah, I think we have a lot to talk about. At any point, you want to come back? Um, any project? I, I or or just to talk about books and movies and music. Uh, I, I'd love to have you back on. Uh, Be careful so, what you ask for. <laughs> so everyone, uh, this is Skip Heller and uh, the the Hollywood film Noirchestra, uh, the new album Dark Passages. Uh, get it on Bandcamp. We'll have links everywhere. Uh, Skip, thank you so much. It was really an honor, man. Thank you for, for making me part of a, a long list of really distinguished folks. Absolutely. No, you're, you're welcome anytime. And this was, this was a blast. So, uh, have a good night and I can't wait to, to keep in touch and hear about all your projects. What is skip.net? And of course you and I are on Instagram. And if you want to find me on that, it's Noirchestra, N-O-I-R-C-H-E-S-T-R-A 323 at Instagram. 323 is our Hollywood area code. Great. Okay. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. I'll have you back on. We'll do it again. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Okay. Have a good night. Finish that book. I want to hear about it. (laughs) (laughs) I will. I will. It's great. Okay, everybody. That was Skip Heller. That was a great conversation. Really had a blast. Head over to Bandcamp and pick up the album. Just search for Hollywood Film Noirchestra. And the album is called Dark Passages. I'm going to play a track from the album right now. This is Touch of Evil from the Hollywood Film Orchestra. Thanks for listening.